to just grab hold of them and to not let fear stop you because there's many points in our life over our, our married life over the last 12 years whether it was the decision to move to hawaii or the decision to buy our practice or the decision to buy our house when we literally were not even drawing an income from the practice i mean there were all these decision points that we ultimately just had to have faith in ourselves and just push forward knowing that we would be able to succeed in them and and just taking advantage of those opportunities. So I think just not letting fear, fear deter you from what you can truly achieve. Hello and hola friends. Welcome to the Medicine, Marriage, and Money podcast, the only podcast for dual physician couples who want to achieve marital interdependence and financial freedom together. In this podcast, you will learn how to show up as the best version of yourself so that you can love intentionally and build a stronger and more financially savvy relationship with your spouse. And I am your host, a physician mom, a doctor's wife, and a life coach, Dr. Kate Mangona. Welcome. Bienvenidos. Contract Diagnostics is a firm 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their careers, most likely a few additional times as well. I love this company as they've helped over 10,000 physicians understand not only what they are signing, but what risks they are taking for their family. All contracts are reviewed by an in-house attorney and presented in a simplified way back to you using custom documentation, compensation data, and times outside normal business hours They make it easy for you. Don't need a contract reviewed? Well, they can even just consult you on the fairness of your current compensation structure or your contract renewal. All packages are flat priced, so you know what you will pay up front. Residents and fellows can even make interest-free payments over time. So look them up at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526 or email at info at contractdiagnostics.com. One quick announcement before I invite Dr. Rupa Wong onto my show. Today is the official start date of Medicine, Marriage, and Money Group Coaching Program for Women Physicians. I am so excited for those of you who signed up, and I look forward to talking to you guys tonight if you're listening on Monday, April 12th on the welcome call. If you wish that you had signed up, don't worry. Reach out to me. Send me a message on Facebook, Instagram, or through my website. Please just reach out to me. I will open the doors back up because I know you as my special listeners are with me. You're my audience. You are my people. I love you guys. I will open my doors back up for you. So please do not hesitate to reach out if you are searching for a community of collaboration instead of competition. If you are looking to push your relationships to the next level, if you are ready to start taking on a little bit more uncomfortable opportunities to grow and to become more passionate and to pour that faith into yourself and into your relationship. I would love to have you. Hello, friends. Please help me welcome our guest on today's show, Dr. Rupa Krishnamurthy Wong. She is a board-certified ophthalmologist who owns a private practice alongside her ophthalmologist hubby, Dr. Jeffrey Wong, in Honolulu, Hawaii. She is a loving mother to three brave children, the founder and blogger at The Attending Lounge, a TikTok dancing queen, an avid YouTuber, and even owns and models her own clothing line. Welcome, Rupa. I love the applause. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. 
do you go by Dr. Krishnamurthy or Dr. Wong? No, Dr. Wong are actually, you know, for my peds patients. So because there's two Dr. Wongs in our practice, they've always called us Dr. Jeff and Dr. Rupa. So it's, it's very rare, except for when I'm like in my surgical center that they call me Dr. Wong and I'm just not used to it. And I'm definitely like never used to being called Mrs. Wong because it's either just call me Rupa or call me doctor. Like I just don't go by this, right? So it's, it still takes a little while to get used to. <laughs> okay. Okay. So well, I'll call you Rupa. Yeah, please do. So before we get into your personal branding, I make up tutorials, social media presence and clothing line. First, let's discuss what you believe makes a successful marriage. And then we'll talk about your hubby, your actual marriage and the mixing of cultures. So what is your definition of marital interdependence? In other words, what makes a successful marriage? I think just being united in your core values, because ultimately your core values are going to inform the goals that you have in your life, your 10-year plan, inform just every decision. And I think if you're in alignment with your core values, whether they're personal, professional, financial, familial, then the rest is going to fall into place and you can you can navigate those bumps in the road. Ah, your 10-year plan. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> What's your 10-year plan? Do you and your hobby have sit-down talks about what your 10-year plan is? We do. And it's interesting because we had never done that exercise. And I it's something that I do for my members in my attending lounge. And I've even offer it's a freebie on my blog as well. But I think it's so important to sit down and do it because I think as physicians specifically, we are so used to just following the path and you put one step in front of the other, you're in college, you're pre-med, you take your pre-rex, you apply to med school, you take your, you know, you did your MCATs and you're in med school, you take your step ones, you match into residency. And then, you know, you just go plod forward and everything's laid out for you. And then when you actually graduate, there's a lot that you can do. There's different job opportunities. There's all sorts of decisions that you have to make. And I think having clarity on where you eventually see yourself going can help prevent a lot of the burnout that I see in my colleagues. And then I think it also just makes you stronger as a unit. So we hadn't done one. We did one, our first one, I think it was probably back in 2000 and maybe like 2010, 2015, something, 2015, so five years ago, 2015, we had hired a consultant to look at our private practice and just tell us where we needed to, you know, do we need to do this or hire more people or whatever we needed to do just from a practice. And we're driving in our little Nissan Leaf, the consultant that we paid. To we have a Nissan Leaf, yeah. We've got the bright blue color. We were driving with this like very ritzy <laughs> consultant. He was sitting in the back seat of our Nissan Leaf. We flew in from California, and he was like, "All right, this is your homework. You're going to create this ten-year plan." And this is kind of known in business circles, but you know, medical people don't do this. And it was really interesting because at that point in 2015. I was really pushing for us to open a second practice location. And when my husband sat down and we were sitting down, I was like, you know, I really just, I don't need a lot of things. I mean, he's happy shopping at Costco. He is just very salt of the earth, very easy. It's like, I want to be able to surf and spend time with my children. If we can pay for it, because our children go to private school, or we pay for school and sock away enough money for, for their college fund and we have enough to retire. I don't need extra stuff. Like we don't, we don't need it. And I, I don't, I don't feel like I would rather work less and be able to spend time with the kids. And it was a real kind of wake up call because I think we, if we hadn't sat down and really identified what was important to us core value wise, which is truly family, then we could have been chasing after something that we just 
you know, felt like was the natural progression, right? Because you get into residency, you get into the best fellowship possible. Okay, now your first practice successful, you open a second, you just, you keep plodding along, but you have to reassess. And I, that was a very pivotal moment for us. And I think that really gave us a lot of clarity as to what we value together as a couple. And then, so we decided not to open that second location. We, we make, we make those decisions for our family and, and I think ultimately then we're happier for it. Wow. So this business consultant to help you through your private practice kind of ultimately helped you with your entire family. Yes, totally. So, okay. And how long have you guys been together? Tell me about, you know, take us back to that time. Tell us how many years ago it was and then what was it like meeting him for the first time? Oh my gosh, it's so crazy because I just did a <laughs> just talking about this. So we met as residents at NYU where we were co-residents. He took a gap year. So we're same age, but I was a year above him. And I was basically even as a, so I was a PGY3. This was 2004. So 16 years ago, PGY3. And I was being groomed to be the chief resident basically. And then this new crop of residents come in and they said, you know, Rupa, we need you to give them the talk that they got it. And our NYU was a little bit malignant back then. And, you know, they got it like push forward, gut in line, head down, don't, you know, so I gave them the talk that they wanted me. And then Jeff was like, oh my gosh, you were so scary. <laughs> you were so scary. And we had something called buddy call, which is for the whole first month, because you don't learn a lot of ophthalmology, obviously an internship or in medical school. So you can't just put a new ophthalmology PGY2 resident and have them see call because, you know, patients on call because they don't know what's going on. So they pair them with a senior resident for the, I feel like the first month or two. So we actually had the very first weekend in July together. We see from Friday at 5 p.m. till Monday at 8.30 a.m. We see all the patients at NYU Tisch Hospital the Bellevue Hospital and the Manhattan VA, which is crazy. It's like so busy and you're just running up and down, you know, First Avenue just seeing patients. And I'm a quick talker. And I was like, let's go, let's go. Come on, come on. And he's like six one, and I'm five two, And he's like running to, you know, keep up with me. He's just such a Hawaii boy. Like he's just, you know, take it, take it slow. Let's, let's just, you know, like let it soak in. Not that he's not smart. He's an excellent surgeon, but he, his pace, if you ever, see him or meet him in person is just he's a different energy completely but somehow basically we became friends of course because it's small residency and we threw a new year's eve party together because his roommate usually threw the new year's eve party for the residency and and then invited friends and uh his roommate was going to a concert. And so Jeff said, well, okay, you can still have it at our place, but I don't really know anything about throwing a party. So we went to, we went to Costco, oddly enough, which is a sidetrack. One of my best friends from college was The Bachelor season 10. I think it was season 10. The officer and a gentleman, the one that was a doctor and a Navy officer is one of my best friends. I actually helped, you know, get him onto the, you know, did a little recommendation. So Andy was visiting and I said, Andy, bring your car because neither Jeff nor I had cars because we we're living in Manhattan. Like, so The Bachelor, me and Jeff went to Costco in Queens to buy stuff. I mean, it's just such a strange story to buy stuff for this New Year's Eve party. I'm setting out these little quiches that, you know, the little stuff, the little orders, what you think is like a party and you're like 26, right? I, I, I love that Costco stuff. So we're sending everything out and it's just Jeff and I. And then he's like, so what kind of guys are you interested in? I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> this is very strange because we'd never, like there was never that vibe with us like at all. And at midnight, we, he kissed me at midnight. And so we, 
That was so New Year's Eve holds a special place in our heart because he kissed me at midnight and that was the start of our relationship. So that was New Year's Eve 2004. We dated for two years, then we're engaged for a year and moved out to Hawaii afterwards. Who's the one who asked you what type of guys you're looking for? He did. And he's so like quiet and mild mannered. It was just very shocking. It was completely not that smooth at all. But it was he had probably been he had been looking at you for a while. I guess yes. And I did not, you know, I didn't realize. So it was it was pretty funny. Wow. Oh, so romantic. And then so uh, what and then you guys started hanging out. What why did you fall in love with him? He's truly, you know, just the kindest person I know. I mean, just honestly, just the genuine heart. You can see it when he smiles. He's a very, just that essence of goodness and the kindness about him. I didn't fall in love because he was going to be an ophthalmologist or because we had the same interests in that way. But it just, it really was the kindness. And and let's let's skip ahead to your wedding because I, I know you had a pretty unique setup. I mean, you guys have different cultural backgrounds. So what did that look like? So we decided to get married in Hawaii and I grew up in North Carolina and I knew if I had a wedding in North Carolina that it was going to be this like 500 person extravaganza, you know, because my parents would feel the need. They helped found the Hindu temple in North Carolina. So they would feel the need to invite the entire community. We were living in Boston at the time, but we, so we got married January, 2008. The plan, we had already had the plan. We were going to be moving to Hawaii July of 2008. So even when we got engaged, we, we had the plan. Okay. A year from now, we're going to be moving to, or a year and a half from now, we'll be moving to Hawaii. So I, I asked my friends because we looked at Martin Luther King weekend and I asked my friends, all right, do you guys want us to get married in Boston, New York, or Hawaii? And you can imagine what they said. They said Hawaii. So there we went with Hawaii. Martin Luther King weekend. Everybody was happy to like, I mean, I had friends flying from Boston, which as a resident, you know, that's a lot of money. They all came out, but it was nice. It dovetailed. We planned it to dovetail with the big ophthalmology conference, which was on Maui. So a lot of people could write off the business. So there's always the Hawaiian Eye Meeting, which is the third largest ophthalmology meeting. It rotates from Maui, Kauai to the Big Island. So that's always, it's kind of nice because now we go to that meeting. It's always our anniversary. It's kind of a business expense because we're getting family and doing all of that. So, but the day of, and it's so, it's crazy because there are really no Indian people that live or very few Indian people that live in Hawaii. So we wanted to have an Indian and a Christian wedding because his family's Christian. They are, he's fourth or fifth generation living here in Hawaii, but they're, he's full Chinese. So his great grandfather immigrated from China in the late, late 1800s, but they are, um, the family's very Protestant and very religious. So that part wasn't so much of an issue, but there's no Hindu priest here. We had to fly one in from Malibu, California. No one at that time had done like Indian weddings in Hawaii. Now it's, you know, 12 years later, it's a different situation. Now there's actually like this wedding planner and she, you know, there's all these Indian brides or that are come from the mainland that want these destination weddings. So they know how to do the mandap, which is the floral, kind of like a chuppah. But I had to like work through all of these things from Boston to with planners in Hawaii. And, and we didn't use a wedding planner because we were just trying to save money. So it was, it was very difficult, but the day itself was beautiful. We had it at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel and... The inside, there's a coconut grove, which is just lovely. And we had our Hindu ceremony there. 
And I really wanted to make sure everyone understood what it was about. So I had my aunt, who's an ob but also very knowledgeable about Indian traditions. So she kind of narrated almost all of the different steps, which was really cool. I made little coloring books for children because Indian ceremonies are super long. And usually every time you go, I don't know if you've been to an Indian wedding, but usually people are not paying attention. They're talking, they're eating. And so I still remember a point of contention with my mother is like, okay, mom, I want this wedding to be an hour or shorter. Okay. It's like, well, why bother getting married? That end quote. <laughs> You'd think I had like asked her for the sun, moon and the stars, but yes, <laughs> but that's what we, we did. We did, we did an hour ceremony and everyone paid attention because they understood what was going on. I made a little booklet, which explained each of the, the steps. And it was really, it was really interesting because I think his family, though they are Chinese, I mean, it's different being Chinese in Hawaii. And his family was really apprehensive about the Hindu ceremony. And, and they didn't know what it was about. And they were just nervous about participating. I got clothes custom made for my sister-in-laws. But the feedback just after it, they, they just loved it. And they, and they loved the symbolism of it. And I thought it was a really wonderful way to share my culture with them. And so then we also had a Indian vegetarian lunch because the, having it be vegetarian was super important. So it was kind of a little bit of a fusion, which was nice. I liked that because I'm a fusion. Obviously, I wasn't born in India. <laughs> so we had, we had Indian vegetarian lunch and then people had a couple hours to like go hang out on the beach or do whatever. And then we started back up again in the afternoon. We did a 430 beachside this time, Christian Presbyterian ceremony. And then we did a dinner reception. And then the dinner reception, we had a band. But then when the band took breaks, we played Indian music, we had the Chinese lions. So we incorporated all of this, we did a tea pouring ceremony before the wedding. For his side, we did Mandy, the henna for my side. So it kind of had like a smorgasbord, it was written up in the New York Times. And on this website called Gawker, which was big back then. I don't know if it is now. And as the, we were the most multi-ethnic couple, <laughs> voted the most multi-ethnic couple. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> that's like multiple, that's not even just two, that's like three or four, oh my gosh. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and thankfully, you know, I'm not North Indian. So the North North Indian wedding ceremonies, they come on their horse and it's like a really big, like big production. And also thankfully my brother, who's a year younger, younger than I am, got married before I did. And so he had the full on, he also his my wife, my sister in law is like German kind of Lutheran. So they had though the full three hour Hindu ceremony to appease my parents. So I didn't have feel like I had to do that, which was good. <laughs> uh, okay. And oh, and then you bring up another important part. So what did your parents or his parents think? Of, I mean, I guess they had already had your brother, you said your brother, somebody who was white. She's Caucasian. Yep. My sister in law. So you know, I have never hardly ever dated anyone Indian growing up. My mother's a child psychiatrist. So she works with a lot of adolescents. And I think that gives gave her a little bit of an entryway. You know, when most of my friends were dealing with these issues growing up in the 80s in North Carolina, their parents were not letting them date or 90s, I guess, you know, letting them date or date outside their culture or this and that. Like, we always had very open and honest communication in my family. So my high school boyfriend was Mike Williams, you know, obviously not this yet. <laughs> You know, and, and, and it's something, you know, I, but I think because of that, I had a lot of friends that would sneak around and, and do this crazy nonsense. And 
I would just, it's my personality. And I tell my parents, I think it's unreasonable for you to ever expect us to marry someone Indian. If you immigrated to this country in the 1970s, of course, we're going to fall in love. And isn't it more important? So these were just discussions that we had. And, you know, ultimately, always what was most important to them that it was, it was a good person. So it really was, was a non issue. Of course, I think, in the back of their heads, if it was someone Tamil that spoke the same language or was the same religion, it just makes it easier for them. But the one Indian boyfriend I did have was such a mismatch for me that, you know, it really showed, obviously, it is much more important the type of person. So it really was a, not much of an issue. I was actually really scared initially because of course this is such a classic guy thing to do when, when my husband and I had been dating, Jeff and I were dating about six months and he hadn't told his mom. We were kind of keeping it quiet from our parents only because we lived in New York and his mom was in Hawaii. His father passed away a while ago and my parents were in North Carolina and we just didn't want them to get too excited. When we were older, we were like 28, 29. There was a lot of marriage pressure on both of us anyway. And he told me, oh yeah, my mom wants me to marry someone Chinese. Like he specifically said this. And his last girlfriend what, from three and a half years ago was, was Caucasian, uh, for three and a half years was Caucasian. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm obviously not Chinese. <laughs> like this is gonna be, I, I know. And I was, and she was just seen like such a force that I was petrified when I met her and I met her and it was completely fine. Like it was just like, you're, she was just like, you're amazing. Your family's so amazing. We, and she always still, still tells me this to this day, you know, Jeff really needs someone like you because he's so type B and I'm like, really like pushing him forward. Our family really needs someone like you. Like it, it just was never an issue at all. So he built it all up in my head and it was obviously not the right, you know, his ex-girlfriend was not the right person for him probably, you know, just nothing to do with, culture or race, I think. So it was from his past experiences that he thought these expectations, but you were different, Rupa. That's right. <laughs> and so, okay, that is funny. Type B ophthalmologist. I don't know if I've ever met one of those. Well, except for surgery. So today is his day. Like he's right now, he's doing all his pre-op visits. And then after he does his pre-op visits, he spends about three hours meticulously going through all his calculations for the lenses. I mean, like for his patients, I mean, he spends a lot of time. It's also why he has great surgical results. He's very meticulous. It's really, it's really interesting because I'm very type A, but the types of surgeries I do, though they're, you know, I'm a strabismus surgeon, they, they need to be exact. But what he does, you have to put in so much prep work on the front end. And I, I just don't think I could do that. But Everything else, he's just, you know, he's he's kind of like, oh, you don't need to clean the house when his his friends from college are coming over. I'm like, of course I have to clean the house. Like, oh, it's fine. It's just, ex, you know, it's just Scotty, no big deal. Like, that's just to him. And I don't know if that's just most men, but that's also just him. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And okay, so going back to the interfaith, intercultural relationship, how has this affected your children? So even though his family is very religious, Jeff is not he would be more i don't know agnostic atheist and so we you know there's no hindu temple here i was a religion minor in college so the just religion in general fascinates me but i actually started i wanted to start attending a church close by here and and just getting our children with some religious values and some ethics and and it's interesting because i almost think that that was more of an issue for him than because he had, you know, it was part of his family and he had chosen to, to, to not go that route. So it, it, was more, it was more difficult for me to convince him. 
let's start going to this church. So what did not, was it like a non-denominational or did it matter? He it's, it's part of the four square churches. It's called C4. It's the, I guess, yeah, it's non-denominational. Yeah. So like, I don't know what they're specific, but not like Presbyterian or Catholic or, or any. Okay. And yeah, cause you just love ed- religious education, find it fascinating and want your children to be exposed. Yes. And, and I just, I think that, you know, I had some instances where I just felt like, and I love, you know, I love growing up Hindu. I thought it's, it's just a really rich cultural experience. And, but for me personally, I found that personal relationship to God for me was, was lacking. I think there's a lot of routine and there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that people practicing Hindus will do like different pujas or prayers or fasting or, you know, all of these things. And I feel like that connection though is difficult, is, is hard to find. And so for me, I found it, you know, uh, through, through this church. And so I thought that with, but it was, I think it was a little bit hard to get him to, to come. And, you know, it's something that I still want my children to be exposed to Hinduism from, from a cultural aspect and, and knowing the stories and knowing what their grandparents believe in um, from both sides. And I, I think just having respect for, for both, I think is really important, you know, yeah. So, so I think that the, the interesting part about Hinduism is Hinduism believes that, which is obviously very different than Christianity, but Hinduism believes that there's all different paths are, are the same. It doesn't matter what your path is to God. And so for Hindu to also, I believe, to be a Christian is not an issue because it's all right. Well, Christianity is your path to God. But for a Christian to believe that there's other paths are the same is a little bit different, right? So yeah, we could probably have hours and hours of, I mean, Minored in this, so which I will tell you, you know, off off the podcast too. I mean, it's just only because it's such a long story as to the the reasons that I, I was prompted to go to this Christian church down the street. So, but <laughs> your do your children speak different languages? Do you guys either of you speak different languages? No. So I grew up speaking Spanish <laughs> because it's what I learned in school. Obviously, on Indian language. You know, English is one of the official languages of India, Hindi and English. My parents are South Indian and my dad was actually born in Sri Lanka. So all they went to, you can go to schools that are in your local language, which they speak Tamil or English or Hindi. So they went to all English medium schools, meaning everything was taught in English. My mother's medical school was actually a French medical school, but it was taught in English. My father's engineering school was German, but also taught in English. So yeah, yeah. So a lot of Catholic schools, like the Catholic, like my, my, you know, a lot of the Catholic schools are the better schools anyway, but it's all called English medium schools. So the majority of kids, that's why everyone that's, that's educated speaks English. They're all the engineers. It's why, you know, Silicon Valley is all, you know, the Google CEO, they're all coming from, from India as opposed to China, because English is you're, you're raised speaking English. So as a consequence, and my grandmother, my Indian grandmother spoke fluent English. So I never was forced to speak Tamil at home. And even though my parents would speak it conversationally at dinner table, I can understand it. If my grandmother spoke to us, my mother would say, oh, you got you to speak to them in, in Tamil so they learn it. If I answered in English, then she would just unconsciously switch to English too. And then we're speaking English. So we never, and, and to be honest, I think also at that time period, you know, my parents immigrated in the 70s. It's all about assimilation. You know, it's a little bit different now, but it was all about just fitting in and making sure you're fitting in. And there was really never, my parents never thought there was any importance in learning Tamil because they thought it was more important to learn Hindi, which neither of them speak. But if you're going to learn the Indian language, then at least 
make it one where that, you know, that's actually useful in India because there's so many different languages and Tamil is only spoken in one particular state in India. So they don't speak that. Then my husband's great grandfather immigrated from China. You know, they obviously don't speak any kind of Chinese in the house. He took Mandarin. He's just not a language guy. He took Mandarin in um, high school. And that is the neat part about being in Hawaii, like Mandarin and Japanese and these languages are offered. Hawaiian are offered. You know, my children learn Chinese in first grade, you know, a little bit of Chinese, which is cool, but they don't speak anything other than You're right, though. Like our parents' generation, it was different. Like my mom, you know, is of Latino origin and, and they grew up only allowed to speak English, like especially at school because they didn't want to call them, you know, Mexicans or they, they, it's like they wanted to assimilate. They wanted to be white and white. It was, it was so much the priority, I think, back then. So I think, and honestly, speaking Spanish is what came in handy when I was in residency in New York and med school and then on our travels when we, you know, go to Costa Rica or Argentina, like all of those places, I can speak Spanish. And so then it just, you know, makes my Spanish better. And I took a lot, you know, I took it in college. So yeah, it's, I would, I actually wanted the children to learn to speak. I think if they could learn to speak Mandarin, I think that would be great because I think that's going to be a very useful language in the future. And I also would love them to learn to speak Spanish, but Spanish is harder here to, to learn. To pick up, yeah, and practice. But isn't it great that our generation, we, we now find pride in like all of our cultural background and ethnicity and that's something that is very different and, and good. It is. And it's it's not about suppressing one, right, versus another anymore, which I think was kind of the case back then. I mean, there really is a lot of pride, which is is wonderful. And they, I mean, my and my children are growing up in such a different way, not just because of the generational difference, but growing up here in Hawaii versus where I was growing up in North Carolina, you know, and, and that they just feel like they look around and all of their friends are mixed. I mean, it's the, honestly, it, it, it's unusual for them. I mean, there aren't that many African-Americans. So my daughter thinks Indian and African-American are kind of the same thing. Like she gets it because she, she reads the book about Rosa Parks, but then she, she'll be a little confused. Like, did they make you sit in the back of the bus? Mommy It's like, first of all, Rosa Parks is significantly older than I am. And so I'm alive. Second of all, like, I'm sure had we been the same generation, I would have sat in the back of the bus. But, but it's just so funny to like hear what they, what's their norm, right? reading reading about this but she's like no but the picture shows a like a woman with brown skin like they don't they really don't understand oh well yes yeah, she has brown skin but that's called african-american and and i'm you know i'm indian we're indian american or you're half indian but you know ever all of their friends are like part that's what i love about hawaii everyone like 40 percent of the population is mixed which is amazing yeah, i need to move to hawaii yes <laughs> Be easily accepted. <laughs> tell so, and also tell me about. Let's talk a little bit about you and your husband working together. They, you know, right day in and day out, side by side. Like you're always working together. How? What's that like? It's so it's it's really interesting. You really have to know your strengths, which we learned early on. But it's also cause for points of contention for sure, because not so much with running the practice or you know, it, but if I'm busy doing something and he's trying to talk to me, then, you know, I know I could be a little bit ruder to him that I could be to myself. Like I'm going to be put in a little more effort. And that's the thing. I mean, if we had jobs where we were totally separate and he got to come home and say, how was your day? And, and I said, how was your day? I mean, today I'm doing all the admin from home, so I'm not actually in the practice, but 
I'm still communicating with them like constantly with the staff and with him. So we know what's going on. So there is no surprise as to something that's going on. But it's also there's nobody else that I would ever trust. I think we see so many times, you know, when physicians are in practice where, you know, things go awry with their partners, right? Like he, we are on the same page. I trust him implicitly. He trusts me. It's just not going to be an issue. I, though it was interesting because we bought the practice from a retiring physician who was on his third wife and his first wife, they had met in medical school. And so his first wife was a dermatologist and he totally was like, I'm glad you're buying this practice, but I don't advise you working together because they had like ended up gotten getting divorced. Like what happens if we get divorced? And you know, we're first of all older, you know, we got married, we're 31. So we had that life experience, I think, to make to really weigh all these decisions. It was not our first choice to work together at all. It's not something that we graduated from residency and thought we're going to work together. We never thought it in a million years. But I mean, it really does help us lead the kind of family life that we want and also allows us to both have the kind of practice that we want that we could not have had enough money to be able to have individual practices. So it worked out. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it offers you flexibility. You can shut, you know, close down vacation when you want. I mean, it, I'm sure it's hard too, but. Right. I mean, that's the thing at first, the first few years are very difficult because if we're not seeing patients, then obviously we're not making money. But ultimately when you, when you build up that, that cushion, then, you know, with distance learning and the pandemic, the last seven months, we, you know, I cut back on my clinic schedule and I've explored a lot of other things that I can do from home. Like my oldest is right over here doing his distance learning. You know, those are the, those are the things that, that we can do as partners in work too. Yeah, exploring. Yeah. Exploring other things. Let's talk about that. Cause I know you're all over social media. You've got your own YouTube channel and physician lounge. Like t- how did those come about? So it's it's funny because so it started with Instagram and uh, one of my good friends here is a dermatologist and she's like oh I was looking on Instagram and there there seemed to be these like doctor accounts so this was about two and a half years ago and she showed me Shari Marchman's account I don't know if you follow Shari and she's like oh like her account's great it's like you you could do this you could totally it's like yeah I think I could so I started posting and then I I started building up a following pretty quickly. And once, you know, even the first six months is when a group of us got connected through that Verify Healthcare campaign. And then we ultimately created this uh, social media nonprofit, AHSM, um, Association for Healthcare and Social Media. And when we planned and organized a retreat in California, I just hit it off with Natalie, Pam and Danielle. And I think we're, we're all moms. We were a little bit older than the rest of them. We were also all surgeons. And when we started talking, you know, I'd always then had this idea to do a women's medical conference, but sometimes you just need people around you to really feel like you can achieve the things that you are capable of, but they really just help you rise to the occasion. And after we met them, like, a week later, it's like, ladies, I've, I've had this idea for a year, but I know I would, I wouldn't go. I haven't done anything with it. Would you be interested in starting a women's medical conference? It would be cross specialty, but geared towards teaching the business side of medicine. And they were like, like twelve seconds later, yes, yes, yes. You know, so that it started with that, and then I think just developing that really close relationship with the three of them, and they're making amazing strides and everything that they're doing as well, it just opened up these, hey, that is possible. Why not? You know, why can't I do this? It, you know, before I think I would have thought, well, that seems a little bit crazy to create a membership site and get people and, 
and then make a YouTube channel and, and having them just as a constant source of support. And, you know, it's not always good. There's, there's, you know, trolls all over online, but dealing with the negative aspects, but having that group has been, I think just having that women, um, that group of women that empower each other, I think has been really, really helpful. And I wanted to create that on a smaller scale for, for and a more intense scale, I guess, for the attending lounge for younger women that are in pre-meds or medical school or even residents, because I think it's, it's so hard. I felt like I had to be so competitive with, you know, other students at Duke or, or even in med school, you just, you're, it just, you can't, you almost feel like you can't be honest about what you want because of that fear of, well, what if I, what if I don't match an ophthalmology and what's everybody else going to think in the class? And there's just all this like angst, right? About so many of these decisions and you need that support. And with the pandemic, I realized everything's going virtual. And I think that having a virtual community is almost better because there's a little bit of separation. So you're, you don't feel like you're community, you're competing with the girl sitting right next to you in, in, you know, organic chemistry, right? So it's just been really neat to see that grow and to see the women members just make those transformative leaps in their mindset. And it's not, you know, it's not a membership for how to get into medical school or how to ace your MCATs. But I really think having what we do with having that work-life harmony, having, you know, being a mother, like all of these are small decisions we make along the way to get to our ultimate goal or where we're at as a confident female attending physician that has have children, right? And I want to help guide them on that goal. And I think that's been really, really great to see. Oh, that's fabulous. I mean, you're, you bring up so, so many good points. You're like, we all, we all feel like at the beginning of this, we're all in the competition, right? A competition, like to get into med school, to get into residency. Are we, we're not all going to, you know, trying for ophthalmology. We're not all trying for like, and there's, we have such this scarcity mindset and yet that's still the imposter too. Like, oh, I don't want to tell anybody else in goals because I may not re- well, well, why can't we just, yeah, all support each other? You know, there, there are so many opportunities out there. So many patients, so many places we will find and we're all different. So we're not going to all help the same patient. Yeah. And you'll find where you fit. That's basically, that's my attending lounge motto. I'll send you a t-shirt. It says, Never underestimate the power of a community of women who collaborate instead of compete. Oh, collaborate instead of compete. I love it. And that how how fortunate you are to, to have met those those couple women, right? Really? Yes, totally. I mean, it's just it's been really amazing to have them to be able to just they inspire me on a daily basis and what what they are doing. And and so it's it just makes these impossible things feel really possible. And then, you know, I just finished doing, a, as I mentioned before, an attending lounge video uh, session with Dr. Bonnie Koo. So she and I were texting afterwards. And so she says, wow, I feel, I feel really old because, you know, some of them are young. I even have two high school students that are amazing that are in it. And I'll tell you the other thing where I love it too is because they are so young and it's not just about me helping them, but they are just so jazzed about entering this amazing field. And I think once we get to our stage, you know, in like, you know, I'm 44, there's a lot of people that are experiencing burnout that want to get out of medicine and that just, 
it's so refreshing to it, it just rekindles my joy and you know reminds me why I love the field was as as I'm sharing my journey with them so I get a lot from uh, from the attending lounge as well yeah talking to the high schoolers the med students remember why why you're doing it because it's so gradual I mean it, it doesn't happen all in one day it's just so gradual you slowly lose sight of it so yeah it it does because it does and not that it's medicine is perfect and there are a lot of things that drive me absolutely crazy that make me feel like, I mean, I have good days and bad days and I have days where like, dude, I cannot do this one more second. But I think, you know, if we're really careful about making those daily decisions that are in alignment with our values, then we're not going to head down that road of like complete burnout and just making sure we take time for ourselves, which is always so key as moms. And take care of our finances, right? Because as a business owner and entrepreneur, you, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of opportunities to go over to discuss finances and especially with your, your hubby. What does that look like? Do you guys have any financial rituals or practices you follow? So, I mean, we are, and I think this is also just very key. We're on the same financial page. I mean, one of us is not an over, I mean, I do like to shop, but I'm very frugal and I'm daughter of immigrants. So it's just the way that I've grown up that I didn't buy my first Chanel purse until I was 40 because until I felt like I've got it, like this is not going to break the bank. It's not going to mean that we can't do this. This We've got a budget for it and we budget for it. So I think it's really important to be on the same financial page. Of course, I'm just like you always, you talk about. And I, our financial rituals are really, I mean, we don't really sit down weekly or anything and discuss it specifically, but we're kind of always discussing it. I think that's just because we work together. So we're always, all right, should we buy this equipment for the office? Okay, let's take a look at this um, vacation. Obviously not anymore, but <laughs> this vacation that we're going to go. I mean, it's just a constant discussion. And 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 I think that's just important. Having that communication is really, really important. I think more there's the time management sometimes is what gets away from us. But I think which plays into the finances because when you're busy and we're both, you know, a dual doctor, dual physician family with children that are young, you know, our kids are seven turning nine on Monday and 11, then your time is valuable. And I think there's a financial aspect to recognizing how valuable your time is. So I will hire someone to come in and cook on the days that I need to stay in the office a little bit later because we eat together as a family and I don't want that to be, and I, and I like to eat healthy foods. So we're not going to McDonald's. So I will have someone that I pay 20 bucks an hour to come in and cook or to, to clean or to fold laundry. And that's an investment in our marriage because I think it's cheaper than paying a divorce attorney. Because I'll tell you the stuff we fight about, we don't fight about big things. I don't know what it's like with you and your husband, but we fight about the small things. We fight about did you take out the trash or, you know, just, it's always like these very inconsequential, nothing kind of things, which is fine because that's what happens. And it would be more problematic if it was a large thing. So if I can erase that pain point, that friction from our lives a little bit where it's not, what are we eating for dinner today? I don't know. Well, do I have to cook again? Because I tend to be the one that like does all the grocery. I mean, he'll grocery shop, but I have to give him a very specific list. Um, he doesn't really cook too much. So I end up cooking. So it gives me a break and it makes me less mad. <laughs> I'm always I mean, a lot, I, a lot of women talk about this, especially even in like the, the physician mom groups, the, they talk about like, how do you guys handle being a full-time physician or, you know, whatever uh, presenter physician you are and having to deal, take care of all the kids and the food and the cleaning and your husband doesn't think of any of it. 
Well, yeah, get systems in your life to take care, help you out with it, right? Because you don't want that to be the source of contention in your relationship. It's it's not, that's such an easily fixable thing. And in the grand scheme of things, the whatever amount of money we pay her a year to come in and reduce that point of friction is really important. That being said, I still expect my children to clean up after, you know, we are certainly not trying to raise entitled children. And I think that's very important too, is, you know, I make my kids do a lot of stuff. We, I very organized. So they've always, I created the systems in place so that they can maintain their own, you know, their own rooms. They know what to do. They know how to clean up their toys because I just like, like in preschool, you do it. So you need a picture on the basket. I'm making a picture on the basket. There you go. That's where the Legos go. Everything's color coded, everything like they can't, you know, anytime I hear, and I think that's also the like practice kind of administrator in me is like, okay, what prevented you from putting this in the proper place? Here, we've got a little bin labeled mac and cheese, put it right there, you know, so you don't know how just reducing those points of friction, I think is really important for the kids and the husband. Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah, just the, because you're hiring somebody to come help you clean your house or cook your food doesn't mean your children can't clean. I mean, you're the one your your time is the most valuable. You're the one making the big bucks. Exactly. No. And and my, my seven year old daughter who's quite sassy, like, well, how come I still have to clean my room? So well, when you start going to work and you start paying for a house and you start, then yes, you can have the housekeeper and you know, she, they meet in their room, but not then you, but for then it's, you've got to put your own toys away and you've got to be able to take care of your own things or I won't buy you anymore. Yeah. It's a privilege, not, not just a expectation. And, and so, okay. And then what is the smartest financial decision you've ever made in your life? I think purchasing our practice was the smartest financial decision, but the scariest financial decision. And so I think smart and to be able to be applicable to any of your listeners is if you run the numbers and you know just financially what's going on, and I think that's just very important, then you can take that chance on yourself. And and even though it's scary because it's very much outside our comfort zone as physicians, um, but it ended up being the one with the biggest payoff. And again, it doesn't mean we're not, I mean, could have possibly gone south too, but I had a you know 30 page business plan where I analyzed everything. Well, reimbursements for are this, if we see 30 patients, if we take over the practice X, Y, and Z, our bank loan is going to be seven grand a month. You know, you can work it out, arm yourself with the data, just like you would for a patient, right? Running the tests, it's the exact same thing. You're getting their, their vital signs. So for your finances. And I, that was probably the smartest financial decision that we made because it also not just benefits our finances, but gives us the autonomy to have the kind of family life that we want to. And then I think second, we really lived pretty frugally for about six or seven years after finishing fellowship and amassing a little bit of a a cushion let us buy into our surgical center when we there was a new surgical center being built and it was a lot of money to buy in but our shares are now worth four times what they were six or seven years ago when we first purchased them and if we had not been living frugally like that we would not have had the money to be able to put down for that so i think just in general it's okay to continue i think sometimes when people graduate from residency and oh my gosh you're making 100 grand or 150 grand as an attending and it seems like a lot of money and there's a desire to like 
start spending it right away. And I think if you can delay that gratification a little bit, or like Dr. Koo talks about a lot, examine the mindset as to why you feel the need to, to spend or overshop. But I think if you can create some really good habits financially, then you can set yourself up to, to take advantage of opportunities when they arise, because sometimes, you know, they're not going to rise exactly when it feels comfortable for you. Well, and something, something else that really impressed me about your financial mindset is I, I read this article about you that was just published. What was it in people, people, and it talked about you paying off all of your medical school debt while in training. So, I mean, and this has to be, which they didn't put in, though I told them about this. So I had an academic scholarship to Duke. So my parents had saved money for each of us to go to college. So they didn't need to spend that. So they helped pay, that helped put, you know, towards a good chunk for medical school because I didn't uh, qualify for any kind of financial, like need-based financial aid. So we did take out loans. And then I also worked during medical school. I tutored private high school students on the Upper East Side and was, yes, which was making a very good bit of money at the time. And so it allowed me to pay all my living expenses and it allowed me to sock away a good bit. So it's what I continued doing during residency as well. So I was able to just put that, you know, because I wasn't investing in anything else. So I just figured, let me just pay off those loans as quickly as I can, because if I, if I don't really notice the money there, then all of that money can just go straight to paying off the loans. So, but not everybody is in Manhattan. I mean, Manhattan has obviously a very high cost of living, but also has the opportunity to be able to like charge over a hundred dollars an hour to tutor high school. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's a decision. And that's a decision you get to make when you graduate is where you want to end up practicing too, in a, in a high or a low cost of living area. And it makes, and you know, it definitely for residency, I think for some people, it's a choice. Some people, you just want to be able to match into the, the best program that you can get into. And we're lucky because New York is so expensive to live in. We had subsidized housing, which was very helpful through the residency as, did, as I did for medical school. But I mean, it's small. It means in medical school, when most people are living in apartments, I was living in a, in not, in, I was living in a dorm room basically where I shared a bathroom with the roommate. And we just had a room and it was small. It was smaller than my office here. No joke. I mean, it was probably like 10 by 10, but it was also, I still remember $376 a month. So. Oh, I love the viewers cannot, the, the audience cannot see your office, by the way. It's absolutely gorgeous. She has all of her books organized by color. Yeah. Someday I'm going to have an office that looks like that. <laughs> I, that was when we renovated our house about three years ago. I said, I need, I need an office. And, and at that time I really wasn't doing any of these side hustles, but I just like want something that's like beautiful and makes me feel happy to do work because I, we had just basically made, and again, it's how we lived. I made a, I do a lot of DIY projects and I had made a desktop for these two pottery barn file cabinets and Jeff and I just put chairs up to that and we edge glued three pieces of wood. We stained it, sanded it. That was our tabletop and that was our office. And it was like in this weird little hallway in our, in our pre-renovated house. So this, and then a closet that was also the a closet and a pantry. Those were my three things. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, a closet and a pantry. I was just like, your office. Yeah. My office is actually in a closet right over there. One of my other, uh, my little radiology office. Oh yeah. You need it. But I wanted I wanted a real closet where I could see my clothes and my shoes so that I could actually wear them and then get rid of the other stuff. So 
Tell me, are there any keys to your success and happiness as a parent, spouse, doctor, and or entrepreneur we have not discussed? Ooh, keys. That's a good one. Keys to my success as a parent. I mean, I don't really particularly think of myself as extremely successful in, in any of that. I, I, I think I am, and this is not imposter syndrome. I just, I think I'm a hard worker and I have a okay. lot of energy and I also have a little bit of ADHD. So like, I think that combination, I don't know, you can't really... <laughs> But I think honestly, what I've learned is 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 to be open to these opportunities and and to just grab hold of them and to not let fear stop you because there's many points in our life over our our married life over the last twelve years whether it was the decision to move to Hawaii or the decision to buy our practice or the decision to buy our house when we literally were not even drawing an income from the practice. I mean, there were all these decision points that we ultimately just had to have faith in ourselves and just push forward knowing that we would be able to succeed in them and and just taking advantage of those opportunities. So I think just not letting fear, fear deter you from what you can truly achieve. I love it. Okay, be open. Don't let fear deter you from what you can truly achieve. We are going to close with that because that is absolutely perfect. And where can our audience find you? So they can find me all over the place. I'm on Instagram at Dr. Dr. Rupa Wong. So Dr. Rupa Wong, no periods or anything. My blog is also the same name or my website www.drrupawong, um, YouTube handle the same as well. I'm on TikTok the same, Dr. Rupa Wong. The membership site is called Attending Lounge, but you can link, it'll. it's linked through my Dr. Rupa Wong website. And ultimately in the spring, I will be opening up a digital course on how to start a private practice. So that I've a lot of questions about just, and it's going to be the basics because I think there's a lot of stuff out there for how to grow your practice and how to accelerate it and how to make it earn 17 times the income that it does. But there's nothing that says, well, what kind of corporation do you have? Is it an S corp or an LLC or how do you get on insurance plans? I mean, the nitty gritty, like how do you find space to lease and where do you open up your practice? So we're going to be, I'm going to be diving deep in all of those very basic questions, which I think are never addressed. So that'll be coming spring 2021, but it'll be all over my website too. So you can join the email list. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Wong. I know you are incredibly busy and are pulled in like 20 different directions. So I really appreciate the fact that you came onto my show to talk to us today. Oh, it's really, it's just such a pleasure. I feel like we're just chatting with old friends. One day I'm out to Hawaii and one Everything is better, and uh, we will we will have dinner in person. You and Dr. Faryal Michaud, do you know her? We're going to visit her too. Oh yes, yes, very sweet. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Rupa. This podcast was brought to you by Contract Diagnostics. This is a company that specializes in contract reviews. Specialization is something we can all appreciate here. So again, when you and your family have contract needs, give them a call. Find them at drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526, contractdiagnostics.com.
Oh, I love it. I love it, Dr. Rupa. Dr. Rupa Wong is such an inspiration. Okay, so for my five big take-home points from Dr. Rupa. Number one, being a business owner could be the best financial opportunity for you and your family. Not only does this impact your finances, if you set up a smart financial plan, this can also allow you to have more flexible family time. Keep in mind, these opportunities do not arise at the most comfortable times. Number two, surround yourself with people who lift you up. Instead of telling yourself, I can't do this, I would never do this, this is not me, you will start saying, why not me? Why can't I do this? Number three, you will find where you fit. Never underestimate the power of a community of women who collaborate instead of compete. The motto for her attending lounge how this inspires Rupa on a daily basis. You will find where you fit, my friends. Number four, hiring a cook and a housekeeper is cheaper than a divorce attorney. I love that one, a cook and a housekeeper. Number five, do not let fear deter you from what you can truly achieve, right? We, a lot of us have fear. It's just something that it's kind of like in our primal nature when things aren't normal or when things aren't status quo. We just, we're scared. We're scared of the unknown, fear of the unknown. But that's when you can take the greatest leaps, the greatest adventures, achieve the most. If fear is holding you back, imagine what you are holding yourself back from. So let us not Hold us back in fear. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Rupa. And I hope you guys walk away asking yourself, how honest am I about what I want? Where do I go for inspiration on a daily basis? What are some, what are some more systems I can put into place in my host, household to avoid contention with my spouse? Am I open to uncomfortable opportunities? And do I have faith in myself? And I love, I love that one. Am I open to uncomfortable opportunities? What is uncomfortable to you? I just want to close with a thank you and, and, and excitement because today is the official day of my Medicine, Marriage, and Money for Women Physicians group coaching course. We are starting today. Today is the welcome call of Monday. If you are listening on Monday, April the 12th, this evening, it is not too late to come in. I did officially close the doors, but if you are listening to this and you're like, oh man, I really, I really need to do this. This isn't the most comfortable opportunity. This is not something I would normally do, but I have faith in myself. This is going to give me inspiration. I'm ready to surround myself with a community of women who collaborate instead of compete. I am ready to take my relationship to the next level. Reach out to me, please now send me an email, hop on my website, connect with me on Facebook and Instagram. I would love to have you still join us at Medicine, Marriage and Money for Women Physicians Group Coaching Program. And again, much love to you and your spouse. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself, 
or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution. Always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor with any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.